Welcome to Sticks and Taps, where the conversation is hockey and the keg is always cold. The games will be on soon, so let's step up to the bar, grab a pint, get into it. Your host, Paul Cuthbert and Liam McGuire. Slanta, fellas, and don't forget to pay your tabs. Ah, good day, Seamus. Thank you so much, as always, for the introduction. Welcome aboard, Sticks and Taps, ladies and gentlemen. Thursday, April 30th, the final day of April 2020. Yours truly, Mr. Paul Cuthbert, down here on Long Island in New York. And please say hello to your friend and mine, me mate, Mr. Liam McGuire. How are you, sir? How is she going? She is going as good as she can go, man. How about yourself? <laughs> yeah, pretty much the same, Polly, as we were just saying here before we started. Uh, you know, it is it is kind of like Groundhog Day, isn't it? And uh, you just wake up and it's the same thing. But uh, another day and then another week. And uh, here we are now, past 30 days of this and about to uh, turn the calendar on a new month. And hopefully by the time the end of May rolls around, uh, maybe uh, maybe there'll be some some direction of uh, of where we'll be able to go as a society and uh, and do some things that at least at the ve- you know, at the very least, we'll we'll be back towards. A little bit of normalcy. It's a long way from that away yet, I know. But when you read about some of the other parts of the world, even here in Canada, um, some parts of the states, I think, and definitely some parts of Europe, have uh, have begun some, you know, some initial and hopefully not premature, but at least initial movement to try and uh, to try and reopen society a little bit. And uh, I'm hoping in in the next. Uh, 20 to 30 days, maybe there'll be a little bit of light, uh, Sean, on uh, on you in the great state of New York and uh, and me up here a little north of you in the province of Ontario. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been good news as far as the, I guess, the flatten of the curve. Uh, the, you know, they've got the, the, down here in the States, it's the, um, it has to be two weeks of, um, you know, a decline in not only... Uh, Positive cases, uh, hospitalizations, as well as uh, the unfortunate uh, fatality numbers as well. So we've uh, our we're in Nassau County here in Long Island, and it's uh, I, I believe it's you know I can only speak for us here in the county. I you know I've been watching the governor as much as I can here and getting up to date. But we we just recently hit the first uh, the two weeks that was the thing. So we've hit two weeks on two of the check marks. Um, so that's good. Um, and, you know, so if anything, the numbers are good as far as it, it seems to be better. But, you know, e- even getting to phase one, you still need the testing, which, you yeah. know, they're, they're still trying to ramp out. And I just think um, I think that's I'm curious to ask you, Liam, how you guys are feeling up north, too. And, and, and you know, because it's it's different. It's different in every area. If you just take let's just take the states in Canada and, you know, as far as where it's been, the numbers have been high here, obviously, in New York and based on the coast here and how it branches out and everything else. But for us even here, okay, you get phase one. You know, the for instance, the bars out here and the restaurants can't even open until you get to phase two. So we don't yeah. even we don't even know how long that's going to get to. And we can't even get to phase one um, until the, the, the state actually approves it. So there's still a long way to go. But even if you get to phase one or phase two, and if it doesn't coincide with, with testing, my question to you is, and maybe we'll throw this back and forth to each other, is how would you feel or are you feeling confident enough to, to go out even if there was a phase one or a phase two where you could go in and sit down at a table in a restaurant without testing? or how, What's your general feeling on that? 
Well, I, I would for sure. I'm probably maybe not the right person to ask because I think I'm bulletproof. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have flowing through your veins, my friend? <laughs> well, I think that's obvious, isn't it? I always go back to the, uh, the expression my ex-wife said uh, when, you know, after she was with me for a number of years. And of course, I never get sick. And she said, you know, it took me a while to figure it out. But I think the thing is with you, Liam, is nothing wants to live in your body. It's as simple as that. <laughs> now, I'd go out in a heartbeat uh, without any hesitation if the if the World Health Organization and the various uh, medical um, affiliations and associations here right in our backyard or uh, or in Canada or globally, whatever the move is made, and they say, hey, guess what? You know, you can go here now without a problem or you can go there without a problem. I mean, to an extent, we're doing that anyway, right? Whether you go to a gas station, a grocery store, or or any place that's, uh, you know, I mean, uh, look, I line up out front of our beer store and they say no more than three customers inside. So you go inside and, and there's only three of us inside. So I guess we're outside that six foot barrier. But at the end of the day, uh, who, who, who deemed that six foot is automatic that you're not, I, I mean, it's just to me, there's a little bit of hypocrisy in everything that's gone on be, somewhat due to necessity. I understand. Because, you know, you just have, you have to get food and, and there's still people working. There's essential workers that still have to go in. And, and I know you can talk about masks and you can talk about distancing and, and all the rest. But, yeah, I mean, if you're asking me that if there was a phase one or a stage one process that was okayed by levels of government and, and health organizations, I myself personally, zero reservation. I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm going to... Uh, to, to jump in with both feet and uh, and order and one for each hand. I'm all in. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's the, like I said, that's the kind of the conversation is even if places do up, who, who's going out? and Because there's, there's definitely a percentage of people, and, and everybody's in different situations, you know. Uh, I'll just say one thing, you know, here, uh, you know, you, me, me and you yourself, you actually being, you know, uh, the entertainment crowd business, you know, whether it's yourself, you know, speaking engagements, crowds and stuff, and, yeah, myself here as a as a professional musician and, and performing like we just had three more three more shows canceled here in May. So we're we're going into May now where we we lost the April shows. Now we're losing the May shows, and June is just around the corner. And 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 the thing is with the phase one and the phase two, uh, even if places open, right, you you still have to have uh, social distancing mandates in in place. So, you know, we just got a communication from one of the bigger club owners out here, whereas one of the main reasons, like, they don't, just to give people a little insight in terms terms of, like, managing this going forward, because, like, we were saying earlier before the show, like, what's the world going to look like when we get to the other side and everything else? I think long-term, things will get back to normal. You know, they'll, they'll find the vaccine or whatever the heck it is, and, and you know, it, it'll it'll be fine. But in the in the short term... See, even a big place like that or, like, a place that holds that can hold up to, like, say, let's just say 2,000 people, right? Yeah. They they have to – they're going to have to – they can't open to full capacity. And most businesses, if you can't – you're in business to go to full capacity. Otherwise, you're not making money. So if you're just turning the lights on and everything else just to kind of, you know, even if you're going to break even, and then you got to deal with the staff and security and all other stuff, like one of the things that they were saying is like, all right, let's say it's a big club and we bring in a big band. We, we can't monitor people dancing, you know, 
and we can't open to full capacity. And then I've stated this to a lot of people in the industry too. At the end of the day, there's not going to be any money left over for live entertainment. And one of the reasons our first phase of shows here uh, just got canceled out in one of the big places. Uh, they've got three, four different huge places out here that we've been a part of every season. But one of the main things is, is, you know, especially the higher-end bands like us, the bigger bands that play the bigger audience, they, they will now not be able to afford our top rate to come and perform because they will not have they will not have the numbers. They will not be able to do that. So all of us here in the music industry know this, and this goes into the festivals that are getting canceled and the concert tours that are getting canceled and canceled and everything else because the logistics are just insane, which also um, relates back to you know, sports and hockey and all the discussion there with um, the possibility of, uh, you know, seasons being returned and games coming back on. But for the venue owners, the logistics of this is an absolute nightmare, especially with the, the, the two to three phases that you have to get to with the social distancing mandates in place. And unfortunately, I think a lot of places out here are not going to make it because they're not going to be able to, number one, open up. Number two, is it worth it to open up? Number two, if they do open up, Who's coming out? Because, like I said, a guy like you, yeah, I'm gung-ho. I'm going to go have a few pints and, and go for it or whatever, and there's a percentage of people that will. Then there might be a, uh, a percentage of even people, you know, who, uh, like I said, I, I don't know if I can take a chance getting sick, you know, for me and my family. But I think that's everybody involved and stuff. So I think this is a little hesitation. So And that goes against what you were saying, too. Like I said, we do. We go out shopping. We go to Costco and we go to the grocery store and we go to get gas and everything else, but it's it's kind of in and out, congregating around people for a length of time. Strange people, at least at this point, is is probably a different um, situation. So you know, the long term of this, and this is something we've talked about too, is the unfortunate, scary part is is who's going to make it. Like one of the biggest school bus companies here on Long Island just had they just shut down remember you were telling me a couple of episodes back about you know uh, a chain of restaurants that just shut down right they can't come back well they just shut down one of the biggest long island bus companies here uh almost a thousand bus drivers are now out of work done finished and that's because like i said the schools are not in operation they don't have any money to fund that so the longer this goes as we head into may now and looking at the future I, I, and you know the 30 million people now in the states uh, filed unemployment. That doesn't seem to be the answer. And that this is a long-winded way to get into me and you what we were saying. What's the world going to look like down the road? So the thing is, is who's going to be left standing? Who's going to have a job? Who's going to have an essential business? Um, you know, people like me and you in the crowd, is people like all of us in the sports industry. And the last thing I'll say this on, on this too is, if the NHL or somebody was going to come back, Major League Baseball, don't tell me they're going to play to empty stadiums or, or rinks because if they can't make money, and even pay-per-view to watch, a, say, the Canadians play the Leafs on a Saturday night in front of an empty building, they're not going to make any money. And then you've got to ask the players, are they going to come and play? And then are they going to? is the league going to ask them to play for full price? Because I'll tell you this as a musician, I have one venue owner that's asking me to come in solo. And I know what he's going to do. He's going to say, well, can you give me a break on the price because we're not making the money, you know, to do like a live virtual sure. show from the restaurant. So this whole trickle down the long-term lean here is just, that's just the, that's the shame of it. That's the unfortunate part of it because we're all going to do the health thing. We're going to keep doing what we can do and everything else that's going on around us. But all of us who do come out of this healthy, 
and uh, are safe and healthy and ready to get back to it. Yeah, how do we make money and who's coming out? Yeah, well, I, I, I totally agree with you. And by the way, I, I'll state right now, I'm, I'm fairly certain, um, 99.9% certain, I am in uh, a small minority of people who probably feel as I do. It, I can't. I can't be a hypocrite. It's just the way I am. I've kind of always been that way. You know, I'd walk into a face of a hurricane if it was for last call. You know, I mean, it, I'm it's with just you on a, that too. Just, I, I don't think it's, it's just a, the way I am. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that's. I, I don't think you're in the small minority. I, I really don't. I, and I agree with you. You know, I, I you know I'm I'm the same way too. I just think you know, you know, before I go out and do anything, and just like you, you know, you have to sit back and, and refer to your family, and I have to refer to my family and, and everything else before you go out and just kind of dive into it. But go on, Liam. But I just want you to know that I I completely agree with your viewpoint of diving in and going for it. You know. I, I just think at the end of the day, uh, and you look what Sweden's doing, and they've just said to hell with it, congregate, go ahead, and and we'll we'll deal with the outcome because they they're of the opinion there now it seems anyway that they think get the groups together, get people together. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people who get COVID either don't show any signs or the symptoms are mild or it's at worst just a really bad flu, or Sadly, you know, the next as you increase up the levels of severity, then there's hospitalization and ventilators. And as we know, there's been deaths. So yeah, uh, there's deaths every year from a normal flu or pneumonia or, or a myriad of other issues. So this one is just, you know, a new strain that we have no vaccine for. And uh, it's come up uh, globally with the speed that it has. And 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 it's and it appears to be obviously at this point more serious than H1N1, the bird flu, or SARS, or some of the others that have reached sort of minimal uh, pandemic stages. Or you know, and then the only one we historically any, ever refer to is the Spanish flu back in the end of the First World War. So you know, over a hundred years ago. So it's really not even in the discussion. So I I, I just think at, at the end of the day that. Um, uh, you know that there's going to come a point here. Curves are going to flatten, and uh, and people are going to be encouraged to uh, to go out. And they'll they'll probably look to see. I mean, everyone's expecting to some degree some sort of second wave uh, hit of this to some degree, but they'll probably also look just to see if the curves uh, stay flattened and and uh, God willing, hopefully maybe numbers drop. Albeit still people getting sick and and sadly maybe still some passing away that it won't be any more severe than any number of other illnesses and diseases that are out there and take our lives and, and, uh, or, our, or put us at risk. And, and we'll be at least given the green light to at least start to move things, move the needle back toward normal. Having said that, you know, the speculation as to what it will do to your industry, which is very similar to mine, we're on a stage, we're on a microphone, we're performing – um, you know, and, and let alone so many other businesses, even my son was here yesterday and, you know, he obviously was in the second wave of layoffs from his uh, job. He's on a low end guy, just started, just turned 24 on a communication job here in Ottawa um, in, in doing installations and things of that nature. So what happens? Everybody's wondering. My daughter's laid off, too. She's wondering. Everybody's wondering uh, what, what, what's going to happen to their respective occupations. It's a, there's a lot of great unknown here, too. And I think the one thing I'm trying to stay away from is the full-on speculation, because I really don't think we know. I, we, we could not have known things were going to be like this had you gone back even six weeks. And I don't really think we know six weeks from now. I know what people are saying. 
I know the doom and gloom that everybody's projecting. And, uh, you know, I mean, I had one woman here, a friend of mine from years ago, uh, who I knew years ago, mostly as a teenager. Girl. We never went to the same schools, but because you grew up in a, in a small community, you get to know everybody. She's a super nice lady, so she's my age. She's 60 years old or 61, and, and uh, she sent me a message, like a public message on Facebook. So it was on my wall for everybody to see. <laughs> and she wanted to know if I had any pull, the city of Ottawa, to contact the mayor because she had been trying to get a hold of the mayor of the city of Ottawa to ensure that all of our local arenas can keep the ice in because we're going to need them to store the bodies because, you know, you can't, you know, like, like indicating that hundreds were going to die daily. I, I'm going, oh, I just don't think, I don't see that happening. And, yeah. and, uh, and of course it hasn't happened. And yet we've had loss of life here in Ottawa, of course, as there's been pretty much everywhere, unless, you know, there's a few remote areas, obviously. But, I mean, it's just, look, it's a global pandemic, and it's freaking serious. But at the same time, as time goes on, I think there's going to be a movement to sort of somewhat uh, step out and put the proverbial toe in the water. And, uh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, it's cold. Yeah, but it's not that cold. Let's give her a try here. And and I think some of that's going to happen. I'm very being very generalization here obviously with less than zero medical knowledge to speak of i'm just giving you some rough sort of sort of thoughts because i i just think the projections and the speculation on all of this you just go down such a dark window and 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 uh it just looks like uh you just look and say well well what the hell oh well i guess we're all homeless in a year then i i don't know <laughs> i mean uh, uh i i mean like it, it's you just start projecting out and say well what are we going to do well, I don't know, you know, I, so, you know, cross that bridge when I come to it. In the meantime, I'll tell you this. We're going to talk some hockey. We're going to listen to a great Irish song. And uh, as and I'm going to have uh, so I'm going to have a bunch of nice cold Molson X tonight, maybe even a couple of rums. And um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Happy days. No worries. <laughs> no worries, man. No worries. I mean, you know what? Look, right now, none of my family, I, I, I only know two people that have been afflicted with this. Uh, both recovered. One took three days. The other took about 10. I don't, you know, I didn't talk to either of them, but I know through third parties. And I know both these men uh, personally. And uh, they're both um, in their late 50s, very late 50s. So they're very close to my age. And they both were stricken with uh, covid uh, one needed to go to the hospital. He was the one that was in and out in three days, and he's fine today. The other one was uh, was much more uh, uh, prolonged attack of it, but he, he was never hospitalized. He just was able to treat it at home to whatever degree you can, I guess. I don't think there's meds per se, but he just did the normal precautions that you would, and thankfully it would, did not require any additional uh seriousness for him to go to the hospital or anything and he now today is fine also i don't know of anybody else personally but obviously all you gotta do is uh, go online and see that it's uh, it's it's the real thing for sure but i i just think paulie uh, at some point in time um we're gonna do the proverbial toe in the water thing whether it's like sweden or other parts that uh like quebec problems quebec uh, elementary schools are are back in school next week next week elementary schools kids are back may 4th Ah, oh, but there's so. only there's only twenty five kids up there, isn't there? <laughs> and they all live in an igloo, and they all play hockey, right? So, 
you know, when they hunt moose at lunchtime, and, yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> got to worry about, you know, as long as they can say, uh, sing a couple of French songs, you know, uh, they're, they're all good. No, you know, but uh, um, Ontario, obviously, I live in Ontario, and, and they have not moved to that at all. And and the Premier of Ontario was adamant that he's not going to do that, whereas the Premier of Quebec is saying not high schools and not post-secondary, but elementary schools are going back on May 4th. And there's other segments of their society that they're opening up within the next week after that. So, you know, I think we'll wait, right, right with bated breath and see if uh, – if there's some sort of mass, uh, you know, there were some people down in various parts of the state. It wasn't in San Francisco. There was a gathering of 10, 12, 14 days ago or whatever. It went quite public on Twitter. And they got they got just admonished to no end, um, you know, saying, look, we're, we, we, we think we should still be able you know, to do whatever. I've been waiting to, to see if any of those people were going to start reporting symptoms or whatever and i know some people have said look it's not that they've called it a hoax but that it's been overhyped and and sadly a couple of them have said that have gotten sick and passed away so you know i mean hey man it's a real deal but i think you can be a fatalist and and uh and just look at the absolute that we're heading towards things we've only seen in a movie or you look and say, you know what, we're a pretty smart society. You know, they're feverishly working on a vaccine. And I know it'll still be a while yet, but one will come at some point in time. And we'll all be able to go and, and get it. And then this is all going to be something that we'll largely look at in the rearview mirror. To get there, to that point, I think it's going to be a little while. But, um, you know, what we do between now and then, Polly, I mean, we've got to just do whatever we got to do. Your family is obviously younger than mine. And... Uh, and I think your immediate concerns are a little bit more pressing. I, I would, and, and you know, in my case, I maybe I'm a little bit more, I know it's a laissez-faire, that's a French term, by the way, uh, which just sort of means uh, I, I'm kind of nonplussed uh, about it all, and maybe I should be more, but I really, I'm not. I, 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 can't, I can't be a hypocrite and just turn around and start scratching the skin right off my bones with, with nervousness and worry when all I'm really looking forward to is uh, my first cold beer in about 90 minutes. <laughs> You're going to wait that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm trying to stay, you know, because it's so easy, eh? It's so easy to snap a cap at 8 or 9 in the morning, and I've done that. And uh, But then you go the whole day, and, you know, I'm trying to write still, and uh, the screenplay for the movie, obviously. Um, moving ahead on that on a day-to-day basis. Um, I'm, there's some other paperwork uh, sort of house stuff that I'm trying to uh, catch up on and stay ahead of that so I, I dedicate a little bit of time to that tell you the other thing I'm doing Polly, <laughs> with a vengeance <laughs> is I'm working out man I'm, I work out almost every if not every day every second day and it's not a I'm not down there for two hours lifting 400 pounds don't get me wrong but it's it's a solid 40 to 50 minutes of uh of of some cardio and some uh, and some strength and um and uh and some uh some mo- you know uh mobility and and stretching and and shadow boxing just things that I like and and it's uh man I feel good I feel good. quite strong right now to be honest with you and, and I think it's affecting me mentally because I'm just kind of going like bring it on I uh, I feel I can take pretty much anything right now and and so I I just uh wake up the next day and i just do the old robin williams um you know from that movie i i seize the day baby 
and and I just go at it. And I really think everybody should do that. You know, it, it, I make my bed every day. I, I I like I said, I try and work out. I do my I try and write for an hour. I I do my hockey stuff. I if I can't if I have time, I do that my taping this day in hockey. I've had a blast doing those. The reaction's been fun. I know only a few people are watching it. I don't care. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. It, it's it's just you do it. It's good for the mind. And if you do the physical stuff, it's good for the body. And if your body feels good, your mind will, you know, it's a good feeling just to do a little something and your, your mind feels good. And I'll tell you what, I enjoy that cold beer. If you like, if you had, if you had something you like to drink, it's got some alcohol in it, whatever it may be, whether it's a wine spritzer and you hold your pinky in the air and you have two of those and you're crawling on the floor or you can drill back 30. Uh, it doesn't matter. Just, just, uh, get a little shot in you. Get, get a little blood going in the veins and just say, uh, Hey, you know what, COVID? Yeah, you know what? Screw you today, buddy. And uh, and just uh, seize the day, baby. Yeah, no, 100%. It's, it's uh, staying busy and creative is absolutely just paramount to to getting through the monotony of it here. I mean, yeah, obviously myself with two little ones here and homeschooling and uh, my wife is in education. So she's every day, you know, with, with their, uh, you know, she's involved. She's a counselor in high school. So they're you know, during the week, they're just doing what they have to do every day, checking in and, and trying to help out with the kids and, and everything else. But, yeah, crazy enough, uh, you know, taking advantage of the time is huge. You know, I've been doing a lot of stuff on the music side and uh, doing a lot of creative stuff myself here. And, and now getting through the, the first two months here, and, and there's still a lot of unknowns with the business as far as future income and everything else. And that's just because of the industry that I'm in, and, and my design company is also part of the service industry. And, and as my clients are struggling to make um, you know money and profits and, and maintaining their service contracts to me, it, it all trickles down. So, But in and around that, like I said, uh, not being a, a doomsayer or anything else and not you know banging my head against the wall and, and, and sitting around in a steep of worry – um, yeah, what you're saying is, is, is absolutely correct. Now I, myself, I'm a, I'm more of a guy who works, um, works out outside. I do a lot of cycling and riding and that's where I get my cardio and that's why I lose a lot of my weight. Um, so I put on a couple pounds here, just chilling around the last couple of months, but it's fucking cold out there still, man, but we're supposed to get a nice weekend and, uh, got the bike all ready to go and. And either way, uh, you know, this weekend uh, we we got some. We're going to do some uh, set the gyms up here in the house too, because this is usually around the time that I start getting ready for the concert season uh, in the summertime here. So, um, but that's that's huge. Yeah, just keep yourself busy, keep creative, um, keep it flowing, and, and and then like I said, then you get to like I said, indulge and enjoy yourself uh, as long as. Uh, but those little things, like I said, making your bed, all that stuff, and just staying. Uh, trying to keep your day as normal as possible because man, I turn I turned around yesterday, man. It was like wow, it's twenty to six, and I but was down here in the studio doing all kinds of stuff and just yeah. checking in and marketing and all this other stuff. And you know, the band just released a single today, so we had all this marketing going on, and we're we're reaching for views and and fans online. Everybody's home digitally and, and doing virtual stuff, so um, it's crazy. But like I said, I think down the road, like I said, it's all going to work out. Uh, when we get there is the question and. And like I said, uh, on the financial side of things, the federal governments just both have to step up, and they, they're just going to have to help people out here because that, that's the only way people are going to make it. But anyway, uh, more stories and conversations for down the road. Real quick, uh, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, NHL-wise, and as far as NHL history, Liam, uh, a quick question on just that thought of 
Uh, the NHL and the NHLPA did get together, I think, yesterday, and you know they they th- same thing. Phase one, phase they're they're you know they're relative to everything else that's going on in, yeah. in any type of business or anything. Um, but your your take on um, just the you don't you don't I don't see any viability in them playing to empty arenas if that was going to happen. And I know we talked real quick, and I don't want to turn off into a, a long conversation here, but. Just real quick, are, are you more in, in the vein of, like, just financially it just doesn't seem viable, whether players are going to take a reduction in salary, leave their families? Uh, all the, did, did you look over what they would uh, they put together yesterday in terms of where their vibe is? And, and just, just a real quick take on the thought of any big sports business operating without making profits or full money or full fan bases. I, I think all they're they're focusing on, Paulie. It sounds like to me, and, and I follow it a, along as it comes out publicly. Um, mostly I, on Twitter, and then you know, there's a couple shows maybe on TV. You know, I'll catch uh, a couple of the American talk shows or our Canadian ones that uh, the sportscasts that that'll have some some video supporting uh, back back stuff to it. But uh, I I think it just it just sounds like if they get some sort of clearance that athletes can compete in some in their normal environment and and they have to do this without fans in the building that there's still an appetite to go ahead with this in some fashion because of TV deals and some money at least can still be made. So that to me sounds like what the biggest carrot is to try and move ahead from a hockey perspective who had made it through most of their season and are hoping to somehow crown a 2020 Stanley Cup champion. I think that's why there's only, or why there's any, I should say, discussion, uh, is why we continue to hear almost on a weekly basis, if not every sort of seven to ten days, something floated out there, whether it be a remote location, an expanded uh, format, um, uh, yes, complete the regular season, no, don't complete the regular season, uh, start next season later. I mean, it seems like every week, whether it's Batman or the PA or high-level media people talking to various board of directors, uh, you know, owners of the teams or GMs and presidents, that there's a myriad of possibilities out there. And to me, it's just largely based on the fact that if they can do anything at any time in 2020 and A, get a Stanley Cup champion and B, do it where they can still broadcast it and regain or retain some of the TV money, then that's what they want to do. Simple as that. I, I, I don't. I think everything else again goes back to where we were ten minutes ago uh, or fifteen minutes ago when you and I were sort of just saying our bit about COVID. Here, it's just largely speculation because there is no there. There's like we know. Okay, so Quebec's opening public schools uh, next week on May fourth, but there's no other dates out there for any place. And you know, other than certain places, you still you can't cross a border. You can't even go, we can't even go from the province of Ontario to the province of Quebec here in Ottawa. They, you know, unless you're, unless you've got property or you work over there, if you're just going over because you have a cottage, you want to socialize over in the province of Quebec because they're opening things up, you can't do that. So there's, there's still so many just natural restrictions here as we're on the verge of May. So I, I just think it's, it's centered around TV. I can't speak to basketball and baseball and football but i'm assuming that you know the the prognosis that's in place and obviously for football they've got a few months to play with but you know it's it's to me from a hockey because we're a hockey show here we're talking hockey i i just think it's largely centered around the fact that they're they're desperate to try and see if they can do anything where they could recoup some uh some some of that uh, retain some of that tv money that's the way i see it 
Gotcha. I'm glad I'm not in on those meetings. <laughs> no, because the end of the day, how are you going? How are you going yeah. to force? You can't force the guys. Yeah. Um, even like you know, local radio here today in in town, and Pierre Maguire, fairly well known, uh, you know, analyst in the sport, said that uh, he he's he, he's in touch with with a number of players that live abroad, and they're they're saying, look, we have no idea how to get back. Exactly. Like we don't know, like there's 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 either no flights or there's no connections or it's going to take just a week almost to just to get back to wherever the hell they play, you know. Yeah. And then and then the travel restrictions. How can you even forecast anything right now? No, like no. it's all such it's all so speculative, and yet we we just again it goes back to like this burning desire it seems like to either want to be the naysayer and say we're all going to hell. And we're all, I don't know what we're, you know, I mean, what these people think we're going to be like in 12 months from now, or, or people are saying, ah, let's just, yeah, I think we can get going in June and July. What, what do you think, Tom? Yeah, I think we're good. Yeah, June and July sounds good to me. I'll just, yeah, I'll hang at the cottage for five or six weeks. We'll have a few barbecues. We'll come back. We'll fire it up. Sound good. Yeah, sounds good. Pat each other in the back. And yeah, we'll just plan the NHL to start in July. I mean, there's nobody who can say that right now. Like you, there's not, there's nothing in place to say that right now today on April 30th. So I'm, I'm like you, I, I, I watch everything that comes out and I read everything that comes out on, on social media from the powers that be. And to me, they're all saying that they want to play. We want, we want to have a Stanley cup champion. Number one, work back from there. We're quite willing to do it without fans in the building. Number uh, that's number two, number three, it's TV, baby. Somehow, Somehow it's about getting some of that TV money. That's where the big ticket is. That's where the NBC contract is. That's where the Rogers TV contract is. Even though that'll have to be somewhat amended, undoubtedly. The the thing is, it's still some cash that could be retained. And that's what's driving this. So they're just saying all the right things right now, as far as I'm concerned. Whether it's Bill Daly, whether it's Gary Batman, whether it's, uh, you know, the PA guy, uh, his name escapes me at the moment, uh, uh, they're all saying the right thing, and 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 the players now are, are 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 the ones that are are speaking with a little bit of reservation. Those that have been asked, I haven't seen many, but some that that have been asked are just going, well, not sure how the hell we get there. But then you know, Philip Dano, the Habs said, I don't know, you know, I got a one year old at home, and uh, not sure I want to be away and then have to be quarantined and everything else. And yep. you know, if it's to play for the Stanley Cup, if you're saying you're expanding from 16 teams to 24, are you going to do something outside the box like that? We've got a chance to go play for the couple. That's different, but just to come back and play 12 or 13 regular season games, it's nobody that that's not going to happen. Let's be honest. It's not, not a hope in hell. So you're going to have to figure out what to do about the draft and then go from there. But uh, yeah, that's what the way I see it, brother. All right, man. Well, one thing you can't speculate on is what's already happened. So what do you say, Liam? <laughs> what do you got for us today? Let's take a little trip back in uh, NHL history, hockey history, and uh, and uh, tell us what you tell us a story today, mate. Now, I got a story for you today, uh, not as long as the previous ones, and probably just as well because we we kind of beat that COVID to death there. But uh, but it was good though, Polly. I think it's good to like you and I only talk once a week here, so I think it's good to to have a chance to air that out and, and put it in our format for whoever listens. And, and at least uh, you're offering some thoughts as am I. And, and, you know, I mean, as, as I think as you know, and some others are two, three times or sometimes four times a week, I've been banging out these videos, you know, on this day in hockey, they're short, 
10, 12 minute things. Uh, well, a couple of them have been a little longer, <laughs> 14, 15 it's minutes. So good, man. <laughs> we got nowhere to go. Give us more. <laughs> you know, I mean, it. Um, I, I try not to do them on Thursdays. Uh, and I, in fact, I don't try. I don't do them on Thursdays because we got sticks and tops. And you look at the anniversary on this day and Steve Smith scored the goal. He banked it off of Grant Fuhrer in game seven. That, you know, probably one of the most infamous goals in hockey history and things of that nature. But while I can, I still want to kind of be the uh, the uh, the Irish uh, storyteller, I guess, from a hockey perspective. And and so I want to tell you a story today. As I said, this won't be overly long, but it is about a man in particular. And I'm going to ask you if you've heard of him, okay? Because I you're, you're obviously above average hockey fan. And we're not, you know, I got you by a few years, obviously, age-wise. But I don't, I don't remember this guy playing either uh, briefly uh, in the NHL and then a little bit in the WHA. But have you ever heard of a hockey player named Howie Young? I've definitely heard the name. There's no. You've heard the name, yeah. yes. Yeah, you've you've heard the name. It's 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 a name that lives on in infamy, to say the least. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the guy. Uh, it was it came to me about three or four days ago when I was just I was in bed just getting ready to hit the sack and I get messages all day from people. And, and a guy asked me saying, Liam, Lou Fontenato, uh, listened on your podcast there a couple of weeks back and you were talking about the how Fontenato fight. And he said, Louie was the first 200 minute guy, but he said, uh, Keith Magnuson had the record, but he broke, he didn't break Louie's record. Whose record did he break? And so I texted the guy back or emailed him. I can't remember what format he asked me. And I said, well, he broke Howie's young record, Howie Young's record. From 1963 with Detroit, he had 273 minutes, and the Fontenato's record was 202. And I said to him, I said, have you ever heard of Howie Young? And, and he messaged me back, said, no, I don't know that name. And I just, the light went off, and I said, ding, ding, that's the one. That's the one for Polly. So <laughs> I got to tell you, Polly, about this guy. So he's born in Toronto in 1937, okay, early August of 37, Howard John Edward Young. He is, by all accounts, you know, a normal child initially out of the gate, two, three, four, five, six. Problem was, um, both his parents were raging alcoholics. So he was actually a child of the ward, if you will, for a brief period of time till it could be arranged for his grandparents to essentially uh, raise him. And they took custody of him. Unfortunately, his grandfather passed away almost immediately. So he was raised from those early stages of life by his grandmother. And as you can imagine, uh, he was living there by himself with his grandmother acting as his de facto mother. And he was already uh, um, growing, had, was growing into a young boy that was very aggressive without a father figure and living out every worst reality that you could imagine at that time, right at the conclusion sort of of the Second World War in Toronto, specifically the Scarborough area of Toronto. And he fell into the wrong crowd at school and started drinking, and which was not uncommon at, in many places the world over and in many generations the world over. He was 12-ish when he kind of started taking to the booze. That is young, and he never really slowed down. And then his grandmother passed away when he was 16 years old. 
and he was by himself at 16. And at that time, from her funeral on, he drank every single day for the next 12 years. And it, it began at that time. So you're going, okay, Liam, where's the hockey stuff here? So at, as he grew up, he was an incredibly gifted and driven athlete. And he was good at anything he touched. He could fire a football. He could throw a baseball. But what he really loved was hockey because he could hit and he could fight. He was a good-sized kid. He loved the body checking. And he absolutely loved to rumble, preferably off the ice. But on the ice was good, too, because, as you know, in hockey, you don't get kicked out. They just give you a little <laughs> pat in the back, tell you to rest for five minutes, and come on out and do it again. So uh, he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And he was so good. He made major junior A at 16 years of age, playing in Kitchener. And he played in Kitchener for two years. And uh, then they had their hands full of him, because keep in mind now, He's drinking every single day. Didn't matter what curfew. Didn't matter if they had uh, if he was in truancy. He had parole officers. He had police issues. Didn't matter. They wanted him in the lineup, on the ice, doing what he could where he was effective. He was physically imposing. And he was good. He was a tremendous skater. And he had a great shot. And he was a real solid 16-year-old and then 17-year-old player with Kitchener. He then goes, they have their fill of him, they make a deal and move him to Hamilton. And he plays for a team called the Hamilton Tiger Cubs, has a has a 18 and 19-year-old, same thing. Uh, do, uh, very dominant in the league physically, very solid as a player, uh, definitely there, not just there to take up a, uh, you know, a number five or number six defenseman spot. He was solid all day, and he turned pro after his second year in Hamilton and and, uh, and and began his pro hockey life. Now, keep in mind, he's continuing to get bigger, stronger, and uh, more drunk and crazier. I mean, that, that really was the, the sort of the temperature of what was going on in his life. So he turns pro in the Quebec Hockey League with the Chicoutimi Saguenays in 1958. All right. And he plays there, leads the team in penalty minutes, solid, solid defenseman. Again, uh, they can't handle him. They move him on to New Westminster. He plays a handful of games at New Westminster. Neither of those teams can handle him. He moves on the next season to the Rochester Americans, the American Hockey League. Now, this is a massive step up. Now you're going up. Now you're one notch below the NHL. And he's with the Rochester Americans in 1960. And he has a solid season for them. He, he's a defenseman playing like number three, number four. He plays 68 games. He has 14 points. He picks up 100, about 170 penalty minutes, 180 penalty minutes. And, but they can't handle him. <laughs> they don't want him in Rochester either. We got to get rid of this guy. He's a psycho. Keep in mind, he's absolutely, I mean, this is Goldie Goldthorpe. Before there was Goldie, there was Howie Young. And, and he's tearing up Rochester. So now they move him to Hershey. And he signs a contract with the Detroit Red Wings. The Red Wings scouts come calling. Of course, everybody thinks they can take a problem guy, right, and make him better. So they put him in Hershey. 
and he's playing there. Again, this is American Hockey League, Pauly. So yeah. this is this is there's only six teams in the NHL. And he is absolutely dominating the league physically. So Detroit say, you know what? We're going to call him up. They call him up to the NHL. And he plays in the National Hockey League. Howie Young, 1960-61. And he's 23 years of age, which isn't, you know, I mean, there's lots of guys play it, had played younger. And he was by no means a graybeard on the team. But they bring him up. And he plays the last 29 games of the regular season. For the Detroit Red Wings. This is with Gordie Howe, Alex Delvecchio, Normie Ullman, all the boys. And he picks up 108 penalty minutes, which leads the team <laughs> in 29 games. He had almost 30 minutes more than Gordie Howe in 1961. But guess what, Polly? The Red Wings go all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals in 1961. They lose the Stanley Cup Final in six games to Chicago. And Howie Young is one of the most effective defensemen in the playoffs. He picks up four points. And 11 games, and he leads the playoffs in penalty minutes in 1961. And they get, hey, they don't care. And you know, at that point, what he was drinking? He would take a beer mug and fill it full of gin. That's what he was drinking. That's what he drank nonstop every day. Every day. He'd mix in the odd beer. But he was a gin drinker. And when I say gin, he wasn't putting in 7-Up uh, or ginger ale. You know what I mean? Insulting and and uh, he's just hammering it back. He starts the next year in Detroit, truculent and just a, just absolutely nuts, out of control, breaking curfew. He hit a cop. He's in jail, all this and that. They can't handle him. They say, that's it. We're, 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 we're done with him. Let's send him, send him down to one of our minor league affiliates, not in the American Hockey League. They send him to Edmonton, Alberta in the Western Hockey League, very, very solid pro league towards, uh, you know, about halfway through the season. And he joins a team called the Edmonton Flyers. He absolutely lights it up for them. He picks up 18 points in 24 games, the final 24 games of the season. <laughs> he almost had 100 penalty minutes, fighting everything. They go to the playoffs, Polly. He led the playoffs in scoring as a defenseman for the Edmonton Flyers. And he helps them win the Laco Cup. They win the championship. He played 12 games. He got 13 points, more than a point a game. And he led the the the, uh, the playoffs in penalty minutes, fighting the world, hitting everything that moved, and then doing the exact same off the ice. And, he's, and, and, and you say he's they, around they, 24, right? 24 at this time? Now he's, now he's 24. Okay. Now he's 24. So now he's been drinking every day for eight years. He makes... He, he played so well in Edmonton, Detroit, so we got to bring him back. He's too damn good for these leagues. Let's try. We'll try and do something. We'll put some chaperones, do some different things. We'll bring him back. We'll try and talk to him. None of it at any avail. Couldn't slow down his drinking. But the next year, he plays his first full-time season in the NHL with the Detroit Red Wings in 1962-63. And he shatters the penalty minute record. By by 71 minutes. Lou Fontenato, 1955, I believe it was, 202. Here we are eight years later. Now Howie's 25, and he picks up 273 minutes. He brawls his way through the league. He brawls his way through all of the other five cities. He helps Detroit go back to the Stanley Cup Finals. So let's just review this for a second. 
1961, he plays 29 games with Detroit, leads them in penalty minutes, goes to the finals, plays outstanding, and, and, and they lose in the Stanley Cup final. 1962, he starts the season with Detroit. They get fed up with him. Send them about three rungs down to their minor leagues. We'll send them North Edmonton. What kind of trouble can he get into there? He goes all the way to the finals, helps them win the championship. Starts the next season in Detroit, plays a whole year in Detroit, 1963. Goes right back to the Stanley Cup finals with the Detroit Red Wings. Three years in a row, three finals, one championship, and cutting a swath with a capital S through (laughs) pro hockey, right? Detroit, the next year, can't handle him. Send him to Los Angeles, back down to the Western Hockey League. Get him away. Edmonton's too close to Detroit. Let's get him as far south as we can send him in pro hockey. <laughs> they send him to Los Angeles. You know what happens, Polly? He's playing for L.A. He's tearing it up. He's scoring. He's fighting everybody. He helps them get into the, into the second round, I think, of the playoffs. He's out drinking every night. Guess who he ends up one night? drinking with Frank Sinatra (laughs) he ends up drinking with Frank Sinatra and the reason that Frank Sinatra found out that Howie Young was in this bar in LA that Frank was in with his posse at the time was because in January of 1963 so the previous year Howie Young was on the cover of Sports Illustrated They put him on the cover of Sports Illustrated January 28, 1963, and they called him, (coughs) I can't remember, I think it was Hockey's Bad Boy or the Bad Boy of Hockey. The other thing I forgot to mention, Paulie, and this is pretty significant, and this is why Sinatra took a liking to him, Howie Young looked like he walked right off a movie set. Okay. You know what what he looked like? Did you ever watch Magnum P.I. in the 80s with Tom Selleck? Oh, yeah. Mustache and all. Mustache and all. That's, That's what Howie Young looked like. Okay. That's what he looked like. He didn't have the mustache in 63. It came a little later, but uh, by the late by the late 60s when people were growing facial hair and everything, he had the mustache. He looked like Tom Selleck. He was about 6 foot 1 and a half. He went about 210 pounds. He was chiseled out of rock. He was tough. He was fearless. He could drink, he could party, he could skate, he could fight. And Frank Sinatra said, "You are coming. You are going to be in my next movie." What? And he put him in a movie. He put him in a movie called None of the Brave. Get out. Yeah, he had a he had a scene. He actually had a speaking scene in the movie. Anyway, so he strikes up this friendship with Sinatra and he's tearing it up in in uh in Los Angeles. Now, Detroit have traded his rights to the Chicago Blackhawks. They have washed their hands of him. And they say, we can't, we're done with him in the NHL. If anybody else wants to take a shot, Chicago, you say you're interested? No problem. Now, this is where two of the better Howie Young stories come in. And now we're starting to approach sort of the end where he's realizing one of two things are going to happen, right? His body is either going to explode, you know, uh, or he's going to die with the drinking. But he's not quite there yet. So the Blackhawks say, we'll take him. So they bring him up. They got him on their team in 1964. He's a member of the Chicago Blackhawks. He's fighting the world. He's going nuts. He's doing everything. And so one night they're on the road. I think it's in Boston. And uh, they get a report at uh, 3 in the morning. They can't get Howie Young out of this out of this bar in Boston. And the police show up. And he's swinging 
this is something that you would you would write in a script. He's swinging from the chandeliers of this <laughs> this 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 bar in Boston, this howdy towdy sort of bar that you wouldn't go into to have a pint, you know. And they couldn't get him out of there. The staff tried. He knocked out all the doormen. So he's in there. He'd already drank everything there was to drink in the place, and he's literally swinging from the chandeliers when the police come and arrest him. About uh, two months later, similar story in Detroit. There was no chandeliers, but he made a massive, massive, and this was the first time they ever actually hit a police officer. The police came in Detroit to take him away, and uh, and he swung on the cops. And I don't care who you are, when, where you are, or whatever, you just can't do that. And he got in massive, massive trouble uh, for that one. In fact, Clarence Campbell, the president of the NHL, called him uh, the scourge of the league or the most uh, uh, disrespectful or disgusting player in, in hockey, whatever. Hung about six things on him. And uh, how he just said, uh, great, when can I get a drink? And, <laughs> and then um, he was back one night. This is, I shouldn't laugh, but the story is about to turn for the better here to some degree. So I will laugh on this one because when it was first relayed to me, uh, by an eyewitness, I just went, this has got to be one of the greatest stories. So uh, he plays a game of hockey in Chicago, 1964. And, of course, he's out his usual haunts after he hits four or five spots like he always did till they stopped serving him. He'd go to the next one. He'd mix it up occasionally so he'd keep getting booze, and he'd drink all night. Curfew to him was just a word that he rarely, just, you know, look it up in the dictionary because he had no idea of, of what it is. And, and he didn't care. And uh, he ends up drinking beside this guy. Do you remember? Do you ever see the movie Crocodile Dundee? Yes. Okay. So um, you got uh, crocodiles drinking in the bar in New York City with the cab driver, right? Okay. Like, yeah. It's an, an Italian cab driver who says to to Paul Hogan there, Crocodile Dundee, I, I'm Italian. I can drink you under the table, right? And and so they go into the bar, and of course, you know, you can't drink out drink Dundee. I mean, that's the way he was in the flick, right? So this was similar scenario in Chicago, okay? Only it wasn't a cab driver. It was a milk truck driver, okay? And he ran in to Howie Young in a bar in Chicago in 1964. And he said, yeah, I heard about you. Ah, you're Mr. Tough Guy, it's not everything else, and you think, yeah, nobody outdrinks me. I handle my booze, and it you know, blah, went back and forth like that. And Howie just went, oh, yeah? <laughs> so they got into it, right? So has, has the night's winding down, and, of course, the milk truck driver is on the losing end of this proposition because God only knows the sheer volume of alcohol that was consumed over the next few hours. But the milk truck driver was explaining to Howie you know, how it worked when you're a milk truck driver and the route you had to follow and how you had to put the milk out and this, that, and everything else. So they go through the night, comes to closing time, milk truck driver out like a light, out like a light. So Howie says, uh, I'll get the guy home uh, there to the bartender or whatever. Give me some cab money or whatever, and I'll get, I'll get the guy home. And I'll go home from there. You know, he'd had his full that night. He wasn't going to start any trouble that night. He's hammered, of course. And and uh, and they 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 get in the cab and and they go to the milk truck driver's house and and there it is. And there's the milk truck parked in the guy's yard and everything. And how he's got the guy slung over his shoulder and he gets him to his front step and he just flings him against the door. And he turns around. And he says, "Huh, 
I wonder if the keys are inside it. Oh, no. You know, it's 1964 Chicago. <laughs> so he opens it up and the keys are sitting right there. So he says, oh, I think tonight's the night where I had milk, milk truck delivered to my resume. <laughs> so, so he jumps in the truck and he heads out into the streets of Chicago delivering milk. But he has no idea where the hell he's going. He just would drive a few blocks and then pull over open up the back, take out a bunch of bottles, and just walk up and down the street, leaving people's doorsteps. Of course, he started doing this about quarter to three in the morning. So he's still out on the roads at six o'clock, and people are getting up, going to work, and there's this milk truck all over Hell's Half Acre driving. And by now, he's not stopping and getting out, right? The window's down, and he's just flinging the bottles out there. And and just saying, you know, the proverbial Chicago version of G'day, how's it going? Here's some milk. <laughs> and he's firing the bottles out there. It took the police about half an hour to find him. They had to go up and down streets. Have you seen him? Yeah, he's about four blocks <laughs> over. And they finally got him. And they got the box in the milk truck. And they, they take him away to jail. And uh, he spent a couple nights in on that one. Missed a few hockey games. And Chicago couldn't wait to get rid of him. And they send him right back to Los Angeles. And he got in some more trouble there. And then, and he just tore the league up. That was the Western Hockey League. He went back to the LA Blades. He's hooking up with Sinatra again. He's hanging out with some of the Brad Pack. There, he's he's hobnobbing with these guys because he's one of the stars of this Western Hockey League. He's one of the best defensemen in the league. He looks like a million bucks. He's built like a million bucks. He's the, the effects of the alcohol are only now really starting to take shape. And, of course, he continues to be, be getting arrested. And then, finally, uh, at, at the age of 28, uh, he, he tells the story, or he told it when he was still alive, that he woke up in a jail in L.A. and he had no idea. He had no idea how he got, why anything. He didn't have one single solitary memory of, of what had gone on. And, and, uh, he just said, that's it. That's it. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to die in jail and, uh, I'm gonna, uh, and he checked in the AA and, and, you know, believe it or not, he actually went to Alcoholics uh, Anonymous, went to the meetings and he cleaned himself up and he stopped drinking. He stopped drinking cold Turkey after drinking every single day of his life by his own admission for 12 straight years, every single day. And I'm not just talking, well, I'll just have my little shot today. Like I do a lot of times, maybe I won't have anything and I'll just have my shot of whiskey or something. He, he had gallons and, and just for, for, for 12 years. So Detroit say, Hey, you know what? Howie cleaned yourself up. We loved when you were here. They brought him back to Detroit. He played another season there. Um, he continues aggressive ways, but now the stories slowly or very quickly sort of ebbed away over time. And, and, uh, he continued to play pro hockey. He bounced back and forth between Detroit and Chicago a little bit. He went back down to the American hockey league, the WHL. It was always, always somebody looking Polly for a man who was tough. If you were tough and you could play, you could find a home in pro hockey. And he did. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks came into the NHL, as you probably know, with the Buffalo Sabres in 1970. Well, guess what? Uh, they they picked him up, and and he played for the Vancouver Canucks in the NHL in 1970-71. And then <clears throat> he was um, 
Uh, he, he, you know, his talent was now eroding, right? I mean, he's in his 30s now, and his talent was eroding. He went back to the WHL, the league that was so fond of him in Los Angeles and 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 in those other teams. They knew of him. He went back. He played in Phoenix because he loved the southern United States. He had gone through a couple of marriages now, but he wasn't drinking, and he was with his third wife. Her name was China, and, and uh, they were hanging out, and he played for Phoenix in the Western Hockey League until the Western Hockey League folded. And then he went to the WHA. He, he, he played with Bobby Hull in the WHA. And he had played with Bobby Hull in the Chicago Blackhawks 10 years earlier. But Hull had never seen the sober Howie Young. And they struck up this amazing friendship that they never really had 10 years earlier. And Howie continued to play. And he played in the WHA. And he bounced around. And he played pro hockey right through the next four years. And then he, he started he, he started doing some... He was an extra in movies when he retired, and he started he started getting some some bit parts and stuff. And then a couple of leagues came calling, including right in your backyard, Paulie, a league in New York City um, called the Atlantic Coast Hockey League. And he played for a team called the New York Slapshots in 1985. How about that? Jesus, right in your backyard, and he played a handful of games for them, and then he played a few games for the Flint uh, Spirits in the International Hockey League. At the age of um, 49, he was 49 years old. Wow. And, and, he, and he played in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League with New York and then in Flint. And then he, uh, he, he retired from hockey and he told his wife, he said, I just want to get south. I want to get as far as let's go. And he went down south and he took a bunch of odd jobs. And one of the jobs he took was he had his truck license. One of the things he had probably shortly after he drove that uh, milk truck. Anyways, he had his he had his class D or whatever it was. He could drive the big 18 wheelers and he would drive them all through the southern United States. And he would drive through or close to or around the, you know, the uh, the, 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 the Navajo uh, desert and, and New Mexico and and all that area. And he just loved it. He loved the country, the countryside. He loved the scenery. And he told his wife, he said, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. And I want to go down there. I don't care what. I'll do anything for work. Will you come with me? And she did. And they bought a, a two-acre lot in in a town called, if you per, if you look at it, it's T-H-R-O-E-O-E-U. You would think it's it's thorough, but it's actually pronounced through. And it's about two hours west of Albuquerque. And and that's that's where he he had his dream home built. And he lived there with his wife and nine cats and two geese and a, and a and a and a big old horse he called Big Red and and he did any job he could but he continued to get calls from Hollywood he would continue to get asked all because of that connection to Frank Sinatra and you know what Polly he ended up going back and doing a just very small parts in in uh, movies or miniseries like, for example, Young Guns Two, with Emilio Estevez and, yeah, and, yeah. and Charlie Sheen, and he was in it. He was in it. He played he was? played one of the guys in the posse. Okay. And 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 uh, he had a role in that. And there was a miniseries called Lonesome Dove, a western. Remember it? Yep. He he was in it. And then and then he did he did a movie with uh, Tom Selleck in in the in the nineties as well. And he's he's living in in through New Mexico um, in a town of 2000 people. And he was driving that truck and doing some other odd jobs. And 
There was a person from the Chicago Tribune went down and interviewed him in 1998. He was 61 years old, I believe. And he said, you know, my goal is I, I want to get a rink built down here. I'm, I'm trying to raise funds to get a rink built down here. And they said, my God, look at you, Howie Young, you know, the bad boy of hockey, cover of Sports Illustrated, um, arrested, uh, thrown in jail, fought cops, swinging from chandeliers, the milk truck story, everything else. And here you are driving a truck and happier than a pig. And you know what? Living in a small town, New Mexico. And he's talking about building the rink down there. And sadly, he, he uh, contracted uh, cancer the next year. Uh, and it, it was pancreatic cancer, which is never good. And it ended up claiming his life uh, in 1999. He died at the age of 62. And uh, I just thought that it would be a good story for us today to tell because it's a name that one time held the NHL record for the most penalty minutes in one season. He had a, you know, not, not, an, not a totally unique distinction, but going to three finals in three years in two leagues and winning the championship, albeit one in the minors, but playing with Gordie Howe, playing with Bobby Hull, playing against upwards of 20 to 30 to 40 other Hall of Famers and and creating some of the greatest backstories, albeit violent and, and somewhat crazy, and you would you would frown on them, and you could certainly, but, but, you know, because he cleaned himself up at his own volition, I think that should be commended, especially at the age of 28. Like, you know, for a lot of people, that's not an age yet where you're ready to do so, but, and you look at his upbringing, a child of the ward at the age of four, you know, and and basically being raised by a grandmother till till he was 16 and then on his own. I think it's a remarkable life and a remarkable story and uh, encompasses a lot of the things that I certainly like. Uh, the fact that he was uh, tough as nails. And yeah, I mean, the drinking, I make light of it a lot, but uh, he certainly was was far, you know, more more into it than I ever was. But but he cleaned himself up. And he led a good life and he was a father and a grandfather and that should be noted. And I don't know if his relationships ever fully healed with those children and grandchildren because he was, it was so rocky still for a long time, but I like to think they did. And I don't know if they did or didn't, but I'd like to think they did. And I just think it's got such a, an almost romantic ending to it. If you think about it, small town, New Mexico, it's like out of a Western and he acted in them and, and he looked like a guy. And I, I would say to anybody listening right now, if you get a chance, Google his name and just look at his pictures and you'll know what I mean. In, in the late 1960s, he could have passed as a Tom Selleck lookalike as we knew Tom from uh, from Magnum in the 80s. That's probably why, you know, he ended up doing some of those and ironically ended up doing a movie with Tom and just shortly before his death anyway, a few years before anyway. So there you go. There's the story of Howard John Edward Young, born August 1937 in Toronto and uh, died in New Mexico in 1999. Well, the bloody story is, is like a, a movie itself. I mean, you know, you start, you know, in Scarsborough there, and, you know, with the the alcoholic parents and stuff, and obviously all the stuff that he was able to, just the traveling, you know. And, and back then, you know, us, you know, obviously younger now, and when you think of the minor league hockey and, and, uh, you know, the NHL now, I mean, we're spoiled with, you know, 30-some-odd teams, going to be 32 here or whatever. And back then, you know, with a six-team NHL league back then, and then I can only imagine what the farm teams in the minor league and the AHL must have yeah. been like back then. 
but it was him, the wild wild west oh, it really yeah. was i you mean know? you know god only knows what what that was like but just um just following along here with the story and, and, and all the places he ended up there. And, you know, I had the question. You had answered it, though. He did. He, they actually – he didn't win a championship with the Wings when he was playing with them. He got no. close, obviously. But uh, the only championship he won was um, – was it the Edmonton Flyers? Is that what the team – Edmonton, Edmonton Flyers, yeah. yeah. In, and the other question the, uh, I had was – the other question I had was the, the team he played with in the WHA. Which Which team was it? He, uh, I, I should point out as well that he was a champion in the WHL with, with Phoenix. The Phoenix Roadrunners, Roadrunners were a right. team in the WHL, which was the Western Hockey League. And he won championships with them as well. So, so not only did he win with Edmonton in 1962, but 11 years later, he's, he's winning with Phoenix in the, in the WHL. He went to the um, finals in 71. And then won the championship in '72, I believe it was. And then when the when the uh, WHL folded, the Phoenix Roadrunners were granted entry to the WHA, the World Hockey Association. So he 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 uh, <coughs> excuse me he um he originally became property of the Winnipeg Jets, and then they they uh, they traded him to the Phoenix Roadrunners, and he played. I think three years with them in the WHA. And then when the WHA was folding or when Phoenix folded, the Phoenix pro hockey franchise, the Roadrunners, then went to another league called the PHL, the Pacific Hockey League, which is the same league Goldie played in. Goldie was in that league the next year. Can you imagine? Wow. And, and, uh, him and him and Howie never fought. I don't believe, but uh, uh, they were in the same league, and and uh, that was called the Pacific Hockey League. And the Roadrunners existed for again for another year there, and then he played um, one more year in L.A. in that, that league, and then that league folded, and then he retired, and then he came out of retirement to play in New York, New York City in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League, and and Flint in at the age of thirty nine. So, yeah, pretty. Uh, Pretty crazy uh, stuff. But in the WHA, he was with the team called the Phoenix Roadrunners, which most people probably only know as a WHA team. Um, for example, Robbie Fatorik was on that team. Yeah. I'm uh, trying to think of Cam Connor played in the NHL, uh, was on that team. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a few other guys, some names, but people probably wouldn't maybe necessarily remember them like I would. But those, those are two of the uh, more – the bigger well, it's, name. It's funny you mentioned, you know, Connor and, and Fatorik, you know, and as, a, as you know, when you're, you know, I was a kid, obviously, when Fatorik and even Cam Connor were on the team on the Rangers, you know, and you, you, what you always do is you always kind of look at where they used to play, right? So the reason the Phoenix Roadrunner, stand, you know, stands out for me, it's a name that's recognizable for me, because on the back of, um, you know, hockey cards and everything, it would list who they played with, you know what I'm saying, where they, where yeah. they came from. And obviously, you know, years ago, I, don't, I haven't picked up a, uh, a hockey card <laughs> recently, but back when I was a kid, you know, they used to list, you know, all the uh, the different teams that they played on the back. I don't know if they're still doing that today or, or how long that went back. So um, no doubt familiar with all that stuff. One last question on this. When he meets Sinatra, he's a member of the Red Wings, correct? Or, or is he, no, or, or is he, no, he's on he's, the Blades? He's, yeah, he's on the Blades. He's in L.A. Okay, so and... here's my question. The, the L.A. Blades back then, I mean, how – I'm trying to picture, you know, for him to, 
I guess Sinatra would know him from being when he was on Sports Illustrated. Though he's 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 in a Red Wings jersey. He's part of the Wings, correct? Wait, I missed the start of that, Paulie. What was that? When he's on Sports Illustrated, the cover. Yes, he's yes, a he's member a, of the he's, Red he's Wings. Detroit right? Red Wing. That's okay. correct. Yeah. So what I'm trying to get now is he's playing for the LA Blades. I'm trying to think of of how popular or what kind of an arena the Blades were playing in. How many people were coming out to see them? Because I'm just trying to. Picture that where Sinatra either runs into him. Obviously, he recognizes him from Sports Illustrated, but the Blades wouldn't have been considered like uh, the talk of the town in L.A. as far as a sports franchise, no, right? No, no. They were a minor league hockey franchise. I believe they were playing in the L.A. arena, um, which probably, I think, had seating capacity for maybe six, 7,000, and gotcha. they, may, they may have drawn half that on a good day. I mean, they weren't a good team, but they had, like, for example, uh, Willie O'Ree, was was a teammate of his, you know, um, you know the fir- first black player in NHL history. They had played junior together. I mean, uh, Howie and Willie actually played a year of junior together in Hamilton, so they they knew each other. But that just gives you an idea of the type of player that was on that LA team at different times. And and I mean, uh, Howie had several stints there, right? It became a home away from home. So and he was just he was a man about town, you know. If you want to use the uh, we always finish with an Irish song, and I've talked to you many times about Brendan Bean and his family's connection and importance to the country of Ireland historically and musically. Well, Brendan Bean was known by everybody up and down the coast and around Dublin and in and around and everywhere else. Well, you can imagine, I think, Howie Young, despite the size of the city of L.A., uh, because he had been on the cover, as you say, of Sports Illustrated, he's a former Stanley Cup finalist. He played with Gordie Howe. He's coming in. And and this is no shrinking violet in a bar. I mean, he was one of those guys that I think that sounds like anyway, and I never had the privilege of having a drink with him. But it uh, it sounds like as soon as he was in, within five minutes, pretty much everybody knew he was there. And if you thought he was just a loudmouth and you were going to go, maybe I'll just take care of this loudmouth and get back to drinking, that would be your worst freaking mistake. And, and uh, you know, so he kind of... I think had that rep and I, I could totally see Sinatra gravitating to that. And I don't know any Frank Sinatra, you know, in terms of just from other than historically as, as we all would, but I could totally see him looking at this guy and gravitating to him. I mean, well, first he did, you know, he yeah. did. He said, you're, I'm going to put you in a movie and he did. Yeah. And that, that's all documented. You can look that up. And, and he, this is right in the middle of how he's professional career. Well, buddy, I'm telling you right now, when you finish Ogie's movie, uh, I think a uh, screenplay for the Howie Young story would be pretty damn good because this is um, I'm I'm I've I've like when when you tell these stories I write all these notes down, and I have like this whole timeline of everywhere he's been. But um, write the screenplay. I think you should play Howie, darken the hair, throw a mustache on, and I just I just wanna I want a shot at being Dean Martin, uh, just at the bar, you know, next to him having a conversation. <laughs> Fire there that you up, go. buddy. It's great, man. No, that's a, that's a super story, and it's uh, what amazes me is the is the journey he took from a kid uh, at sixteen, you know, Scarsborough in Toronto, and then ending up in New Mexico here in the states, and everything in between Rochester and Hershey here on the East Coast, and then back yeah. and forth to L.A. and Phoenix, and and the Hall of Fame and New York. On. The, yeah, the briefs. The, yeah, New York. I'm I'm gonna look those guys up. The the slap shots, yeah. man. That's crazy. I gotta look that up. Eighty-five. Forget about it. I was, I was, uh, I was, you know, induced in the, you know, the Rangers in that time in the eighty, in the eighties. Forget about it. But uh, definitely have to look into it. Beauty stuff, well, man. 
Great story. Yeah, you you, you want to know who his head coach was with the New York Slap Shots in 1985-86? You got to tell me. Who was it? Dave Schultz. Get out of here. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, man. You got to look that team up. You got to look them up. You got to give us some Dave Schultz stuff on this show. That's what you got to do. Oh, yeah. That's, that's that's easy you know that's uh, <laughs> uh that's that's the other thing we should do if this thing continues too Polly. is you know if anybody listening has a guy that uh you know that you grew up and uh, and you'd like some maybe some backstories of by all means flip us a message however you pick up this podcast and let us know and i'll uh if i have the uh, the ability i would i would love to uh um i have had a lot of stories <clears throat> come to me over the years and and, uh, you know, there's a, there's two guys here in Ottawa, um, Mike Milligan and two, two Mikes and, uh, let's see the guy's name, Mike Milligan. Anyway, Mike Milligan grew up in Scarborough and he grew up with Howie Young. And, and, uh, when I first met Mike and we, we started having conversations, he knew who I was and I was, you know, I was well into doing my hockey trivia stuff around Ottawa and whatnot. And, and and he said, you ever heard of, heard of Howie Young? I said, well, absolutely. And, you know, I told a few little things that I knew. And he, and he, he grew up with them. Like, he was one of those kids that was at school, you know, with Howie and, and knew the story about Howie being raised by his grandmother. And, and to the point where when Howie was coming home from the summer playing junior A, he had bought this, um, I can't remember the exact car it was, but it was top of the line, brand spanking new right out of a lot. And, uh, and, and Mike said they would... They would have the hottest girls, and it was a convertible, and they would rip around Toronto and Scarborough, and 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 uh, you know, and he just tells this story about coming to an intersection and them getting mouthed off by these guys, and how he just put it in park, saying, "I'll be right back, everybody," and just went over and just started just started wailing on these guys as they sat in their car, just started feeding them, and then came back and you know leaves them like bloody pulps at the intersection basically makes it back before the light turns green, you know, and jumps in the car and said, okay, where are we off to next, everybody? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so the only way to go. You just, you just kind of feel almost like you, like, you know, through a guy like Mike who, uh, who grew up with him has a very, very strong affinity for him because he was a childhood friend. And as you can imagine, so to hear those stories um, kind of cemented the research I had done and the people I had talked to. Like the first time I mentioned Howie Young's name to Gordy Howe, Gordy just he just went, oh boy, like <laughs> he just I mean this is coming from Gordy Howe, and he just he just you know when you see a guy just sort of step back and turn his head and and the expression in his eyes just kind of went back in his head. He just went, oh boy. <laughs> oh yeah, Howie. Well, <laughs> you know, like he didn't really know what he wanted to say because I don't think he knew how much I knew, you know, about Howie at that time. And and uh, I just I got to ask Gordy. He's right in front of me. I got to ask him. So I did, and that was his reaction. So and you're talking about a very unique character by hockey standards, definitely by NHL standards, and just one that nobody knows. I, I think very very few people know anything about him and. Boy, if there's, uh, I don't think there's a better podcast than ours to get the type of um, backstory on uh, on a guy like that. Because I I have researched it. I have talked to people who played with him and against him, and uh, including a personal childhood friend. So 
I think I got uh, I got the pretty good scoop on the guy, and and uh, I just think the whole thing is just uh, really an amazing ride. It really is, and you know, died early. Obviously, sixty two is too young, but uh, but you know what a legacy he left, uh, albeit um, infamously, no question. But pretty cool nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, look, now when somebody brings up Howie Young in front of me now, I'm going to react the same way Gordy did. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I've heard the story, brother. (laughs) Uh, Good stuff. All right, buddy, man. Uh, Great NHL story as always. More to come. Just fantastic stuff. All right, we're running long today, which is good. This uh, this is good therapy for me too, pal. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I I consider myself uh... very lucky to get to uh, spend this much time with you at least once a week. It's great stuff. So, uh, yeah. it is. It's fun. I enjoy it too, Polly. It's always great to hear your voice and and catch up on the uh, trials and tribulations here of what we're tribulations of what we're living through. So, so here we are. All right, mate. So we end the uh, show as always with a, uh, I guess it's the Clancy Brothers music <laughs> podcast as we call it now. <laughs> no. Well, we uh we always tip yeah. the hat to uh, a traditional Irish song. And hey, look, man, you, you can't go wrong with the Clancy Brothers. We we know we play them here a lot, but we yeah. we, we hope to be doing. Lots more of these shows, so there's lots more songs to come and lots more acts to come as well to uh, to, to wrap up the shows here. But take us away here, Liam, and tell us uh, what we got on tap today. Yeah, there's there's as you know, Polly. There's there's obviously literally hundreds of of different genres and 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 different threads you could go down with, especially with Irish music. Or I think as you alluded to, one of the um, uh, threads on on Facebook last week. You know, there's Irish comedy. There's different things, different bits and skits, and different things you can play. But I think for the for for now, until we exhaust uh, some of their repertoire. Uh, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makeham, <laughs> kind of partial to me. So um, without further ado, uh, picking a song today called Finnegan's Wake, which is actually was a, again, like most of Irish history, has its origins back to the mid-1800s, but is better known maybe today for it being a song sung by quite a few uh, Irish groups over the years. And notably the Clancy Brothers, but the Dubliners and many others have made it a staple part of their music diet. But for others in the literary vein, it's the name of a novel written by an Irish author named James Joyce, who was critically acclaimed um, for most of his adult life. He was a Dubliner born and raised and did study outside the country and uh, did did live outside the country of Ireland and and wrote outside the country of Ireland. But everything he did, if not right to the T, everything then close to it had a had a foundation of where he grew up, when he grew up and the family and friends and contemporaries and even the enemies and 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 uh, antagonists that he may have confronted or had to deal with in his life all somewhat became parts of the fabric of 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 some of what he wrote and Finnegan's Wake was um a novel I guess for lack of a better term I think it's safe to call it that uh, that most people even myself included I-, I couldn't read it I couldn't read it all because of the style it's written in it took James Joyce 17 years to write it, I believe, from if I'm not mistaken, from 1921 to 1938. And he died in 1941 at the age of 59. 
Um, he had some some health issues and passed away, obviously. So it was released only a few years before his passing. But it has a very unique style that I can't even properly describe. It's not written in normal English as we would regard normal English. It's got a different style, fixture, texture to it, almost inexplicably so. And the Clancy brothers have become famous for, or did when they played, they're all sadly gone now as we know, but in their day, the 50s and 60s, on several of their albums, including a couple live versions, one of which we're going to play for you now, uh, they would give a little bit of a background of, um, of, of, the, of the, the novel, and of, if not James Joyce, there's one, I don't think we're playing that one today, but there's a bit of a background anyway on, on sort of Finnegan's Wake, and at the end of the day, um, Finnegan's Wake does encompass somewhat of of a of a, a man who dies sadly in an accident and is waked and and the other thing I wanted to say about that Polly is that you know this has become a, a a pretty significant part of our society only in the last ten or fifteen years we most many people today are not calling them wakes and funerals anymore they're still part of our vocabulary but there so also is celebration of life yeah let's go celebrate this person's life and to me the origin and the genesis of that is irish and and i think it's the irish wakes where you know where i remember at my dad's you know 23 years ago 24 years ago that that not that we had a, a bar set up in the funeral home but let's put it this way um, neither my brothers or I went through those services dry and neither did many others who came in and, and we didn't hide the fact that there was some spirits being made available. And that's not the only time I've been to, to a service like that. And God willing, it will not, it'll happen again because they are true celebrations of life in that respect then as sad as they may be. And I love just the terminology of it. And I think it, or, it originated largely from what is known as an Irish wake. And that really largely originated, in my belief, from the song and the novel by James Joyce and the song Finnegan's Wake, made popular, among others, by the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem. And what you're going to play right now, and I think uh, I'd like to do a toast in this particular case, Polly, if I may. Let's do it. Raise well, three years uh, today, and I know every week you are so good at uh, making sure we honor the first responders that are out there in the medical profession that are taking care on the front line. And I don't mean to steal your thunder here because you always do such an eloquent job at that. And so I did want to support that as well. But I, I had a conversation, text conversation with a friend of mine, Shane Fagan, today. How about that for an Irish name? And um, he was messaging me saying that, of course, uh, reminded that the memory of his father, Greg, passing away three years ago today. And I had forgotten that it was the anniversary of Greg's passing, and I got to know Greg a little bit. I knew of him way, way before I knew him personally. I met him personally later in life, but I knew of this man because he was one of the best athletes in Ottawa history. This guy was literally outstanding at anything he touched. Fastball, football, hockey, golf, shooting pool, and if need be, if you wanted to 
get a little horny with the gloves off, he was good to go. And uh, he was a good-sized man. He was a big, gregarious guy, good-looking guy, and uh, extremely well-respected, and a great friend to thousands, especially the entire sporting community of the region of Ottawa-Carlton and the rurals and the valley. Everybody knew Greg Fagan. So lost him three years ago today. And uh, I thank Shane because he's going to listen to this for letting me know. And I did write a little something on his dad and posted it publicly. Well, today, publicly on Sticks and Taps with uh, you, Polly, hopefully uh, joining me in this. I'd like to, as we uh, as we listen to Finnegan's Wake, um, dedicate the song and, uh, and the memory and my toast today to Greg Fagan. Slanta. Slanta. Shane and his dad. Good stuff, mate. All right, we're going to play this song, Finnegan's Wake, Clancy Brothers Live. We'll listen to the song, and we'll come back and say goodbye to everybody. Here you go, folks. There was a Dublin street ballad in the last century that found its way into the music halls of Dublin. A song called Finnegan's Wake. James Joyce, the author, was fascinated by this song. Most of us just thought of it as another drinking song. The fella dies, is laid out, Whiskey spills on him, the water of life. And needless to say, he rises from the dead. What else would he do? Right, the rest of us could see it as a, a pleasant little song, fun at a party. Joyce saw in it the entire cycle of life, death, resurrection of the whole universe. rather full his head felt heavy which made him shake he fell from the ladder and he broke his skull and they carried him home as cops to wake they rolled him up in a nice clean sheet and they laid him out upon the bed with a bucket of whiskey at his feet and a bottle of porter at his head Friends assembled at the wake, and Mrs. Finnegan called for lunch. For she brought in tea and cake, then pipes, tobacco, and whiskey punch. Minnie O'Brien began to cry, such a nice clean corpse did you ever see. Tim up, morning, why did you die? Or a shift your mouth as Paddy McGee. Maggie O'Connor took up the job. Oh, Biddy, says she, you're wrong, I'm sure. Biddy gave her a belt in the gob and she left her sprawling on the floor. <laughs> then the war did soon engage, woman to woman and man to man. Shalele, it all was all the rage, and our own eruption soon began. <laughs> Mickey Maloney raised his head when the bucket of whiskey flew at him. It missed and fallen on the bed. 
the liquor scattered over Tim. You got here, oh boy, see how he rises. Timothy rising from the bed. Said, Hurl your whiskey around like phrases. Thunder and chases, do you think I'm dead? <laughs> That doesn't get you going, man. Nothing will. Go on. The Greg Vegas. I tell you, I don't, you know, we joke about the Clancy Brothers every week here. We're featuring them, but I don't know who does it better. You know, as far as the the, the setup, the storytelling, and the performance, it's just fantastic. I mean, I forgot. I haven't heard that song in a while. And that is the prototypical Irish structured song of the, you know, the, the low key verse, and then the upbeat chorus, and it just yeah. repeats. It's just rinse and repeat, and it's just a great little part of it. And each song is a story, and that's what our show is 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 really becoming. You know, uh, obviously featuring uh, hockey here and, and NHL history now with the games not being played, but uh, uh, it's 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 a great part of our Irish background. Yeah, uh, growing up, it's all about stories. Um, the last thing I'll say here, wrapping up this show here today, is, is you know, my memories as a kid is Christmas holidays and Christmas night at my folks' house where we grew up, and we would have the family over, the extended family over. After dinner, we'd ha- open up the house, and we'd be singing and telling stories till 6 o'clock the next morning, and that's what it's all about. And my uncles would go around, and everybody, everybody would have to sing a song, and these were a lot of the songs that we used to sing back then when I was a kid. But again, it's all part of the Irish, um, you know, our Irish background, the storytelling. Again, celebrating life uh, wakes. You know, you're, you're talking about that <laughs> before, and it's just the memories are rushing through. There were so many, and God forgive me, <laughs> there were so many actual funerals I went to the next morning. Me and all my cousins, if, you know, unfortunately when an uncle or an aunt passed away or somebody in the family after the wakes, the night before, you'd head out to the pub, and you'd you'd stay out very late because you yep. have everybody in from Ireland and out of town, and you know that's when you you get together as you got older. It was either you know weddings and funerals, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, well, that's that's it, man. It's that's a big it. part of it, man. It's great, great <laughs> memories and, and, and good stuff, and um, very proud to. Uh, uh, be raised uh, amongst it because these songs, like I said, and, and having this opportunity to talk with you every week, it and that's why we're doing this, me and you, because we come from that uh, background, and we know uh, a lot of the fans listening to come from it as well, and we appreciate everybody listening. And, uh, again, uh, great stuff, great song, man. Right on, brother. All right, pal. I guess we're going to say goodbye until next week. <laughs> it was a long one. But I love it. Don't force me to start drinking right now. <laughs> oh, you better get into it soon, man. Good stuff. How young? Appreciate everybody listening as always. Thank you so much. Stay healthy and safe out there. And Liam, as always, I'll let you close it out. Say goodbye to the folks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Get a welcome to stick. That's the wrong song. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Jesus. Put the whiskey down. <laughs> Put it down. Put it down, Polly. <laughs> Woo-hoo!